Okay, let me say again, it is a joy to be with you, and I say that not as a throwaway line or an empty phrase. It really fills my heart with great gladness and joy every time I am with you. I got to preach at a conference a week ago. I'll get to preach at a conference a week from now. And every time I'm anywhere else, I am more and more convinced that there is nowhere I'd rather be than here and with you and following Jesus and living life in this community. I am so grateful to God for you and for these times when we preach that I get to preach God's word and you receive it for what it is, the word of the Lord to us. Here's where we are in our preaching, just to sort of fill you in and catch you up. We just finished a series, a short series on marriage. If you missed any of those, they're all online, and hopefully that will be and is helpful to you. We're going to do one more shorter series this month, and then after that, we're going to start something longer in the fall. And so this month, we're starting a series that we're calling the four G's or living in 4G. Now I'll explain what that means in a minute, but let me just tell you one part of this that I'm particularly excited about is in this month, we're gonna have some of the guys from the Elder Track share the pulpit this, this month with me. And so the Elder Track is this track of guys who sense a call to pastoral ministry, and those guys are gonna be carrying the pulpit through this month. And so Joe and Sibby and Binu will be preaching this month with me. So I hope that you are excited by that, I pray. Uh, and that you'll join me with, with me in prayer for them in their preparation, and also pray for your own hearts that you receive God's word well this month, okay? Let's pray together for a moment. We have a great passage of scripture to consider, some weighty things, things that our minds are going to have to be firing on all cylinders to sort of get, so let's ask the Lord to help us be attentive to his word, and then we'll get to work in the scriptures. Pray with me for a moment. Our God, we give you thanks for this time as always, and we pause to say we need your help. We need your help to keep our minds attentive upon you, to think through great things of the greatness of God. Pray that you would arrest our minds when it begins to stray and wander and bring it back to the gravity of you as revealed through your word. We pray that you would be with my mouth now. Together we pray that you would help me for what man can accurately describe God. So come, take this weak mouth and fill it with power from on high, from the Holy Spirit, that my words would be infused with power. I pray that you would make me both a slave and free, slave to say nothing more than what your word says or nothing less, but also free to follow the leadings of the Holy Spirit and to trust what the Spirit wants to say through his word more than even my own preparation. I pray for the hearts and ears and minds and eyes of your people on our own, we're like blind men looking at the sun, deaf men hearing great music, and we miss it all. And we can see this text and not see it, hear this word and not hear it, unless your Holy Spirit gives us power to see God, to hear God, to feel God, to believe God today. So come do that work, and it will be for your glory and our joy. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, let me start by saying this. We've all got different things about our lives that we wish we could change, right? There are, there are things in our lives that we wish were different. And I'm not talking about superficial things like I wish I was taller or skinnier or prettier or any of those things. I'm saying deep character things, emotions, patterns, behaviors, things about ourselves that we wish were different, things about our character that we wish could be transformed, right? All of us have that kind of stuff. If, if I let you for a moment just to begin to think, what was one thing that I wish was just different about the way that I behaved 
or this thing that's going on in my life or the way that I react to this thing that I wish could just change. Let me, let me give you a few examples. Some of you know what it's like to be imprisoned by lust. You've believed in Jesus, some of you, and still you know this, this addiction, this sexual sin that's carried with you for decades, and that's no exaggeration. Some of us 20, 30, 40 years, we know what that's like, and so we know also what it's like to make promises and try to do better and try to be different, and we work as hard as we can, and we try to change, and we can't. And some of us get to the point of despair, to the point where we just feel like, I'm just going to have this in my life always. This is going to go to the grave with me. I'm never going to be able to change. Some of you know what it's like to struggle with temper, right? So you try your best to keep calm and composed, and yet something always seems to light the fuse, and you find yourself exploding even though you're trying hard not to. And no matter how much you try to kick that habit and try to change, you seem to be powerless to be able to do so. Some of us could talk about fear of people, so maybe you're, you're trying hard not to care what other people think about you and their opinions. You're trying to be more assertive, more confident. But no matter what, you seem to keep being paralyzed by what people think and say about you. And, and you try to pretend like it doesn't bother you and it doesn't matter, but you're just kidding yourself. Because all the time, everything you do, how you behave, how you act, seems to be filtered through what will people think of me, what will people say of me. We could talk about anxiety. You try hard not to worry, not to be anxious, but no matter what, you find yourself being a worrywart. We, we could go all day, right? I could give you example after example. What I'm trying to say is if you pause for just a moment, each of you could think about something in your life that you wish you could change, that you wish was different. When we come across those kinds of things, we've got one of two general reactions. Either we just grow frustrated and tired and we just give in. We, we accept this is who I am, this is who I'm always going to be, this is going to be a part of my life, I'm just not going to be able to, to give this up, I'm not going to be able to change. Or, other reaction is all the way on the other side, which is you kick harder, you try harder, you scream louder, you fight this thing, and you try more and more to be different, to change, to work at it, right? We see this happening in our community all the time. So our smaller communities are called soul care groups so far. And so when we gather in soul care, someone will share what's going on in their life. And without even meaning to, all of us jump to give advice on how to fix behavior. And so we all seem to know what that person needs to do in order to change, right? And so we give our best-intentioned, well-meaning advice. So someone will say, I'm struggling with lust, and 10 people will jump in with, well, have you tried to install a, a software on your computer? Try a filter, try an accountability group, try this mechanism, and that should change you. Someone will talk about anger and will say, have you tried walking out of the room or punching a pillow or taking up boxing or, or doing something to work out that aggression, breathing exercises, whatever it takes to try and fix that behavior. If I'm anxious, have you tried to make to-do lists? Have you tried to take some breaks? Have you tried a vacation? And, and we're full of well-intentioned advice on how to change. Hear me. What if the key to changing and true transformation was not rooted in behavior, but in belief? What if the key to really changing in your life was not rooted in behavior, in what you do, but in belief, in what you believe? You've got to stick with me for a second. This is going to be an introduction that, that you need to hear so that we can 
continue on with the text we want to today. So don't tune me out, but we all want to change. But what if the secret wasn't just working on doing the right thing, but on believing the right thing? What if working on behavior is just treating the surface and symptoms and never getting to the heart? Right? If you, if you went to the doctor because you had pain in your left arm, and he said, take two Tylenol, and you went home, and a week later, and he, you came back, and he said, take two Tylenol, the pain will go away. And that happens week in and week out. Eventually, you're going to say to him, you're just treating symptoms. You've got to tell me, why is this happening? Is my arm broken? Is my heart messed up? What is going on that's causing this? And what if behavior is just symptoms of something deeper and why we do what we do or don't do what we want to do is rooted not in behavior but in belief, in what you do or don't believe? What if behavior is just symptom and you've got to get deeper if you're going to really experience change? Here's what I'd say. If I'm wrong, just keep on trying to change by working on your behavior. If I'm right then perhaps we are about to unlock the secret to true transformation. And perhaps you are about to stumble onto that which can truly change your life. Let me say a sweeping broad statement. Underneath all of our sin and all of our problems is unbelief. Let me say that again. You got to hear it. You got to let your mind think through that. Underneath all of our sin and all of the problems we face, all the things about us we want to change and can't, is unbelief. There's something about God that you don't truly believe. Because if you believed it, your life would be different. That beneath all of your sin and all of why you do what you do or don't do what you want to do is something about God that you're not believing or some lie that you are believing. Belief is what causes behavior. All right, so over these four weeks, here's what we're doing. We want to give you four truths. They all start with G. That's why we're calling it the four Gs. Four truths about God that if you believe these things about God, your life would be different. Four truths that when you come across sin in your life, you can trace it back and go, something in my heart doesn't believe one of these four things. Here are the four truths. God is great, God is good, God is glorious, and God is gracious. God is great, God is good, God is glorious, and God is gracious. Now maybe you're sitting here and you immediately go, I believe that. And I want to ask you, do you really? You know it here, but do you really believe it here? Because if you believed it here, if you didn't miss the mark by 18 inches from here to here, if you believed it here, it would change the way that you live. And so what I want to do at the outs outset of, th of this series is give you hope. What if you actually believe that what we're going to talk through over these next weeks might be the key to the change in your life that you're desperately looking for? All right, let's unpack the first one of these today. Today, the first of these four Gs, God is great. God is great. To look at that, we're going to be in Isaiah 40. It's on page 600, the page that Keith read for us. Turn your Bibles there. It's this incredible passage. I read this week of one man who was trying to write about God, and he said, like clowns trying to put on Hamlet is men trying to speak about God. And that's really what I feel like. I feel like a clown 
trying to describe to you what God is like. This passage is one that I would encourage you highly to think upon, meditate on. Don't just even study it, but just read it and, and allow your mind to wander where this passage goes and allow your mind to think about who God is. Let me give you the background as you turn to Isaiah 40 so that you understand what we're about to look at. God's people, the people of Israel, are in captivity. They've been brought into exile. What that means is the people of God had been God's people, and yet they were always sinning against God. And God was always warning them that if they kept rebelling against him, if they kept going to other gods and false idols, he would judge them. And eventually, he lets another empire called the Babylonians come and take over Israel. He takes the people of Israel, are taken out of their land, brought in captivity to another land, and placed in Babylon. And so now, here the people are. You've got to understand sort of their psychological, emotional, spiritual state if you're going to understand Isaiah 40. They are now in a foreign, hostile land where they don't want to be, and they are afraid and doubtful and anxious and worried, and they're at a place where their lives feel like it's completely out of control. Their life feels like it's completely out of control. And in that moment when their lives feel like it's completely out of control, God comes and speaks Isaiah 40 through the prophet Isaiah, and he's about to minister comfort to them. In fact, if you look at verse 1, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And so everything God's about to say in Isaiah 40 is trying to comfort these people who feel like their life is out of control who feel like they're in circumstances and situations that they just cannot manage. And God is going to come and minister comfort to them. How he does that is very odd. Because when you read Isaiah 40, basically what God does is he's going to comfort them by telling them how great he is. Don't miss that. Did you just catch what I said? He's going to comfort them by telling them how great he is. How does that work? Think about your life. If you were grieving the loss of a loved one, a child, a spouse, and someone came to you and said, God is enormous and great, you might want to punch them. You wouldn't feel like that was comfort to you. How are these people whose lives feel like it's completely out of control supposed to be comforted by God telling them that he's great. Do you see that? That's the tension in Isaiah 40 is here are these people whose lives are completely out of control and God is going to come and minister comfort to them and he does so by revealing to them how great he is. And the question, the million dollar question we've got to be asking as we read this text is if God is speaking to a people whose lives are a mess, how is saying to them, I'm awesome, I'm amazing, I am incredible, I am enormous, I am great, supposed to be of any help or comfort to them. And so I want you to sort of keep that in your mind, and what we're going to do is we're going to let God speak and see if we can make the connection. We're going to see if we can draw the connection between, he's great, my life is a mess, how is that supposed to be of any comfort? Let's start at verse 12. In verse, at the end of verse 9, Isaiah basically says, behold your God, here he is. And in verses 12 onwards, he begins to describe what God is like. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales 
and the hills in a balance. Here's what God's doing. God's about to begin to reveal to this people who he is. So this is not the perspective of man looking to God and describing God. This is God describing to you who he is. This is God's definition of himself. He's going to tell you what he thinks about himself, who he is himself. And he begins by telling you his greatness over creation. And he starts by saying, who has measured? He's going to ask a series of questions. His first one is, who has measured the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand? Listen, with all of our science and technology, advancement and progress, the smartest minds cannot begin to even estimate how much water there is on the earth, how many gallons of water there are on the earth. And yet what cannot be measured by us, God says, fits in the hollow of my hand. What's the hollow of your hand? If you take your hand and go like that, that little space is the hollow of your hand. And God says, you take all the oceans and all the lakes and all the river and all the rains and all the water on the earth, and it fits like a small pool in the hollow of my hand. Hannah and I were doing family worship together, and we were talking through Isaiah 40. And I said, Hannah, here's the hollow of your hand. And I explained what the hollow of her hand was. And I said, what if I took a small cup and poured that water into your hand? And, and we realized a cup would be even too big. Maybe a thimble worth of water would fit in the hollow of my hand or Hannah's hand. And what if, what if we said, okay, what about a cup? And she said it would, it would spill right over. And I said, what if we went to the bathroom and took not a cup but a, a bucket and poured it over? And, and she said it would, it would spill over. And then I said, what if we took all the water and all the oceans and all the rivers and all the lakes and all the rain and poured it into your hand? And she just looked at me like I was crazy, like I told you, it's too small. It won't fit, right? And then I said, do you know that God says all the waters of the earth fit in the palm of his hand and Hannah's immediate response was God is huge my four-year-old is teaching me that God is great all the waters of the earth Isaiah says fit in the hollow of his hand he goes on to say he marked off the measure of the heavens with a span so what's a span a span is the distance between the tip of your thumb and your pinky so, so I need you to get this. I, I watched this video by this man named Louis Giglio who tries to take scripture and science and, and connect the two, and it was fascinating. Do you know that science tells us that the universe that we belong to, this universe, is massive, massive and huge. In fact, we call it the known universe because every time we build a bigger telescope, we find that there's more real estate than we possibly knew. Every time they have enough money to build a bigger telescope, we find the universe is bigger than we knew. And so we call it the known universe because scientists know that there's more out there. We just don't have the technology yet to see it all. And so what we know of the known universe, I want us to try and just wrap our minds around this for a second. So you've got to pretend with me that you're back in high school science. Just, just listen to this for a second. To try and understand the lengths of the universe, what ruler can you use? All right, so the, the foot or the yard or the mile is useless. And so the smallest ruler that scientists can use is called a light year to measure the universe. What's a light year? Science tells us that light travels at 186,000 miles a second. Do you remember that from high school? 186,000 miles a second. That is fast. 
In fact, in one second, light can travel around the earth seven times. That's fast. And a light year is, what if light traveling now 186,000 miles a second was allowed to go, not for a second, but for two seconds, was allowed to go for one year? Traveling at 186,000 miles a second, in one year, light could travel 5.88 trillion miles. All right, at that point, it's all just numbers to us. Once you're past thousands and millions and billions and now you're in trillions, wh what does that even mean? But, but hang with me for a second. 5.88 trillion miles in a year. That's how far one light year is. And the light year is the smallest unit of measurement that scientists can use in the universe. That's the smallest ruler that scientists can use to try and measure out this massive universe. In this universe, now think big, we live in one tiny galaxy within the universe. Our galaxy is called the Milky Way galaxy. That's where we live. That's where Earth is. And our small galaxy, and, and I need you to know, there are billions of galaxies in the universe, in the known universe. And our small galaxy, among the billions of galaxies in the known universe, is itself 100,000 light years wide. That means that our small galaxy, if you traveled 186,000 miles a second and did that for a year and did that for 100,000 years, you'd finally get to the edge of our one galaxy among the billions and billions of galaxies in the known universe. That's big. In fact, the universe is so big that scientists are convinced there has to be life on other planets because this universe is far too big to just be a habitation for us. And they're right. It is, it is too big to just be a home for us. In fact, do you know that we're not even at the center of our own galaxy? We're like two-thirds off to the side of our own galaxy. So we're, we're in the boondocks. We're like the Cleveland of our own galaxy. I'm sorry, John. I had to do that, right? So we're not even at the center of our own galaxy, let alone our small galaxy within the universe. We're, we're just some, one scientist called it like this pale blue dot, like this speck off to the side. And this universe is far too massive to be just a home and habitation for us. Scientists are right. Except, what if the purpose of the universe isn't ultimately to be a home for us? What if the purpose of the universe is to display the greatness of God? Then the universe is just big enough. What if the purpose of the universe is not just to be a home for us, but to display, to shout out how great God is? I told you I was preaching at a conference. Shino and I were in Colorado, and we were driving around sightseeing. There's this place called the Garden of the Gods. It's just these massive red rocks, as tall as mountains. They're just there. They're not the mountains. They're just these huge, enormous red rocks, not man-made, just put there by God. We were driving by it. There's no purpose to them at all, and I couldn't help but tell Shainu, this is just God showing off. I mean, that's the point of this. This is God showing off, and do you know that's what he's doing throughout the whole universe? God is showing off everywhere. 
He's the one being who is actually the center of the universe for whom showing off is right. And he is declaring everywhere how great he is. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hand. All of creation is always shouting, God is great. Now listen, we can't even fathom the extent or length of the known universe. And Isaiah says, did you hear it? He marks off the heavens with a span. So, so we don't have telescopes big enough, and God goes like that, and it fits from there to there. I guess if you're a people whose lives feel like it's out of control and like you need to be held, perhaps finding out that God's hand is big enough to hold all the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand and big enough to measure the universe like that might actually be of some comfort. Let's keep going. Verse 13, we'll move quicker. Isaiah goes on to say, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Here's what Isaiah does. Isaiah turns from saying, you know the waters that you can't measure. And you know the heavens that you can't measure. Well, God measures them in, in the hollow of his hand, in the span of his hand. And he says, what you can't measure, God measures with no effort, with ease. But you know what cannot be measured? God. He says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? You know who is without measure? God. I was going back over some theology track notes that we had. Theology track was something that a bunch of us guys did together as we were studying about God and, and trying to study the scriptures. I want to read you just some of my notes that we took about God being omnipresent. Try and hang with this as best as you can. Omnipresent is just this fancy word that simply means God is everywhere present. He is everywhere at the same time. When we say that God is omnipresent, we're not just saying that a part of God is everywhere, but that all of God is everywhere. So it's not just that God is so big that his pinky is out here and his leg is out there and God can fit everywhere at the same time, but that all of God is at all places at the same time. Not a part of God, not just one extension of God. All of God is everywhere at every point of space with his whole being, and yet he cannot be contained by space. This is not to think of him as unendingly large or bigger than the universe, but rather to stop thinking of him in terms of size or spatial dimensions at all. He exists without size. God existed before there was space. God created space. So if you ask where was God, he was not in a place we could call where, for there was no where or space, but God still was. I've lost 99% of you, right? That's the point. You start thinking about this and your head begins to spin. God made space, so there was never a where was God. He always was, and, and he's fully at every place at all times, and yet cannot be contained by space, and God cannot be measured. God is big and massive and enormous. Isaiah goes on to say, just as God cannot be measured, so likewise 
his knowledge and wisdom and insight and understanding cannot be measured. Do you hear what he says in 13? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Here's what Isaiah is saying. God is basically asking, tell me, tell me, whom did I consult when I made all things? Whom did God seek advice from? You can't do a simple thing without getting input from 10 people. Whom did God consult when he made all things? You know, the pagan religions used to believe that creation was made by a committee of gods. So you'd have the powerful God and the wise God, and they'd all get together, and they'd map out as best as they could, and they'd make creation. And the Bible just laughs at that and goes, folly, foolishness. There was one God, and who was God supposed to ask? Tell me, how, how big should I make the earth? How big should I make the solar system? How far do you think the water should go? How high should the mountains be? What level should oxygen be? Whom did God consult? No one. Isaiah is saying, listen, do you know that there is no limit to the knowledge of God, to his understanding, to his insight? Have you ever considered that God has never learned anything? He's never discovered something. There's never been something that God didn't know. He has always known all things. He's known all things that are. He's known all things that are possible. He's known them at once. There is no limit to his understanding. No one teaches God. No one counsels God. No one instructs God. He knows all things. There's never anything he's never not known. Isaiah says, look, it would be like if you, if you read every line of every book that has ever been printed and you discovered every factoid on every internet page, on every corner of the internet, all of it gathered together would be like a, a kid's preschool book to God. His understanding has no limit. And I guess if you're a people who are trapped in a part of your life where you don't understand what's going on, Perhaps it would be of comfort to know that God understands everything and knows everything. Let's keep going. Verse 15. He says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor is it beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Here's what happens. Isaiah turns from saying, not only does God not need the counsel of any one man, he's also greater than all men. In fact, he's greater than all nations. Remember, here is Israel trapped by the Babylonians, and their minds, what they see from their perspective is that their fate lies with this powerful nation. Their life or death rests in the hands of this powerful empire. And so they're scared of this nation. And so God begins to talk about, you want, you want to talk about nations? Okay, you want to compare me now to the nations? He says this, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. One preacher said it like this. If you're out in the yard and you've got a bucket full of water, and you cross over the yard, and as you're putting the bucket down, the water sloshes just a little bit, and one drop of water bounces off the edge, falls down the side, and hits the floor. Would you go back to the hose and refill the pail? 
or the bucket, you wouldn't even notice. And God says, all the nations, with all their might and all their pomp and all their power and all their pride, with their military and their strength and all of it, they're like a drop in a bucket. He goes on to say, you know what they're like? They're like fine dust on scales. So, so you've got scales that measure, and, and you know that the, the slightest weight can tip the scales. Except the nations, he says, are not even weighty enough to tip the scales. They're like fine dust that don't even move the scales. They just rest there, and, and the most you have to do is go and, and, and dust it away. That's what all the nations and the powers and the authorities and the governments and the terror and all the people aligned against God are like. Now, don't misunderstand this. It's not that God hates the nations or despises them. No, God loves the nations. He sent Jesus for the nations. He sends us to the ends of the earth and to the nations with the gospel. But it's if you're going to compare the greatness of God with the greatness of man and his governments and his nations, it's like a drop of water in a bucket like dust on the scales. He goes on to say, do you know God could lift up the coastlands like a grain of sand? So what's that? If you could pick up one grain of sand, not, not scoop up sand, no, no, one grain of sand. If you could take one grain of sand, w would you feel like tomorrow your arm would hurt? Like, man, that, that worked out your bicep. I mean, a newborn has enough strength in their fingers to pick up a grain of sand. And Isaiah saying, do you know for God to lift up all the islands would be as effortless and easy as picking up a grain of sand? He goes on in verses 23 and 24. We won't go there now to, to talk about these governments and kings. And he says, look, you've got kings and, and rulers set up in their places. But do you know what they're like to God? They're like a little seedling that grows up from the ground. So if, if you picture a seed and it, it starts to take roots and, and a little green stem springs up from the ground, that little stubble is what kings with all their power and wealth and, and might are like to God. In fact, when God wants to do away with one, verses 23 and 24 says, do you know what he does? He goes, he, he breathes and they topple over. In fact, the text says, and that little breath is like a hurricane to them. And they're done away with. He ends this, this section by saying, look, all the nations in comparison to God. So not just Babylon, but America and China and all the nations that were and will ever be. And every government and every ruler and every king and every power is like nothing. He goes on to say less than nothing, as though they don't even exist in comparison to the greatness of God. And I guess if you're a people that feel like your life is out of control and it's held by this great power you can't beat, it might be of some comfort to know that the greatest power you fear is like nothing to God, is like dust on the scale, is like water in a bucket, is like a grain of sand. We could keep going, and there's much in this passage I would want to show you more. But let's jump to the end and see how he begins to wrap it up in verses 25. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Here's what God's saying. Who are you going to compare me to? Right? In the scriptures, you find God uses different analogies to try and describe what he's like. He's like a rock. He's like a lion. He's like a tower. He's like a fortress. 
But no analogy fully captures God. He's in a category all his own. He, we, we have no boxes by which to describe him or define him. Who are you going to compare me to, says the Holy One. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number? He's talking about the stars in the sky, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Here's what Isaiah says. Isaiah's trying to wrap this up, and he says, you, you, you want to see the greatness of God? Look up. Look up at the night sky. Don't do it in Philly. We, we, you don't see stars. Go to the country and, and look up in the night sky, and what do you see? You see stars. All right, now come back to high school science with me for a second. The closest star we have to our home, Earth, is, of course, the sun. The sun is, is so massive and big that you could fit a million Earths within the sun. The sun is this raging ball of fire that one person joked is a, a cool 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface and a warm, toasty 27 million degrees in the core. It would take the gross national product of the United States of America for seven million years for Pico to be able to light the sun for one second. And the sun is just an average star. It's just an average star. And our galaxy alone, I'm not talking universe, I'm talking our small galaxy, 100,000 light years wide, our galaxy alone has billions of stars. In fact, so many billions that if you were to count one star every second, one, two, three, four, please stop, right? Five, six, if you were to count one star every second, it would take you 2,500 years to count the stars in our galaxy alone. And there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in the known universe. And Isaiah says, he brings them out every night by number, calling them all by name, and by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. We can't even fathom, let alone count the stars, and, and God says, every night, I call each one by number and by name. And not one little twinkle, twinkle little star is missing because of the greatness of his power and his might. God is great. Here's how the passage ends. Verse 27. If all of this is true and God is this great, here's how Isaiah finishes. He says, so why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Do you hear that? Here Israel is in captivity, and, and they're crying out and complaining as if they've been forgotten and missed by God. And Isaiah's just finished saying, don't you see, he has every one of the billions and billions of stars known by number and name, and if he's not missed one of them, why do you think you've fallen off his radar? Why do you think he's missed you and forgotten you? He's the one who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand and measures the universe by the span. He lifts up the coastland like a grain of sand. He wipes off nations like dust on scales. Why do you think he's forgotten you? 
He knows every star by number and name. Why do you say my right has been disregarded by God? God's forgotten about me. He's not forgotten about one star in the universe, but he's going to overlook you. You fell off his radar. Why do you say, oh, Jacob, my right has been disregarded by my God, my way forgotten by him? He goes on, 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Think about that for a second. God never grows faint or weary. You, the strongest of you, can work for a few hours, but you're eventually going to take a nap. You're eventually going to have to sleep. You might pull off three all-nighters in a row. Your body's going to eventually give in. And when you sleep, do you know what it is? It's a confession. I'm not God. But he neither grows weary nor faint. Think of that. He is the one who is holding the universe together. Each night, every night, he is bringing forth the stars by number and name, calling each one to reappear in the night sky. Every night, he's holding the universe together. Every day, he's holding the galaxy together. Every day, he's holding our solar system together. Every day, he's holding the earth together. Every day, he's holding the nations and the governments and the rulers together, orchestrating, ordaining over all world affairs. Every day, he's holding individuals within the nations together. Every day he's watching over your individual life. My, tw- my pinky can't twitch without God's sovereign power, without the greatness of God upholding it all. And yet all of that work that he upholds is effortless and easy to him. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't grow faint. Your daily planner makes you want to have a heart attack. And God upholds the universe, and he doesn't grow faint or weary. Instead, verse 29, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall fall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. So here's, here's the best of us. I mean, you take the strongest, young, strapping man, athletic, well-built, put together, and even youths fall weary under the weight of the world. But, verse 31, they who wait for the Lord, that is who trust in him, who believe in his promises, who believe he really is as great as he says he is, shall renew their strength, or that word could also be exchange. They're going to give up their weak strength for his strong strength. And they shall mount up with wings like eagles. You watch an eagle soar. He climbs higher and higher with effortless ease. And those who wait upon the Lord and his promises will soar in their lives with effortless ease. And they shall run. They're going to sprint through their life and not be weary. They're going to walk day in and day out through this life. And they will not faint. Now here's the million dollar question we began with. If God is speaking to a people whose lives feel like they're out of control, that they can't fix what's going on in their lives? How does seeing that God is massive and great and enormous and huge bring comfort? Here's the answer. If God is great, then I can trust he's in control so I don't have to be. That's why it brings comfort. If he's great and he's holding the universe and the galaxies and the stars, if he's measuring the waters in the palm of his hand, if he's got the mountains on scales, 
If he blows and kings and governments are toppled down, then he's in control and I don't have to be. Here's the point. If the waters of the earth fit in the hollow of his hand, why do you think your life is too heavy for him to hold? If he can measure the universe by the span of his hand, why do you think your problems are too big for him to grasp? If he can lift up the islands and the coastlands like a grain of sand, why do you think your circumstance is too heavy, your situation too massive for him to uphold? If he has no limits in his knowledge, his wisdom, his insight, or understanding, why do you think he doesn't understand what you're going through? If he considers the mightiest nations like a drop in the bucket, like dust on the scales, why do you think that your adversaries are beyond his power? If he knows every star by number and name and by the greatness of his power, not one is missing, why do you think he's forgotten you or missed you or that you've fallen off his radar? The reality is, if he is great and he's in control, then I don't have to be. And if he's got the universe in his hands, then I can stop living like I'm trying to carry it on my shoulders. The reason our lives are filled with great anxiety and worry and fear is not just because we gotta start doing the right thing, that's surface. It's because we gotta start believing the right thing. Deep down, you and I don't believe God is great. I get frustrated when things don't go my way because deep down, I wanna be in control. I get disappointed when people don't do what I want them to do because deep down, I think this world would be better ordered if I ran the universe. I get afraid of what's gonna happen in my life because I feel like I've gotta orchestrate and control the events. Anxiety, fear, worry, these things are because we don't truly believe. But if we repent and believe he is great, then we can come to the place where we don't need to be in control. Let me say this, and this will be the last thing I say. Ultimately, the greatest display of the greatness of God is not the galaxies or the universe, not the stars or the seas, not the nations or the mountains or the hills. Ultimately, the greatest display of the greatness of God is Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. What do you think a God of this greatness and magnitude and power could do to you who are rebellious and sinful, who give this God the middle finger every day through your sin? What do you think that God could do to you? When, when you rebel, when you are traitors to him, when you minimize his glory, when you take this God who is greater than the universe and squeeze him into two hours on a Sunday in your life, when you fit him into one compartment of your life when all space cannot contain him, when you belittle his glory, what do you think that God could do to you? He <laughs> breathes and nations fall apart. What do you think he could do to you? But instead, let me invite you to consider what he has done for you. And what he's done for you is he has not treated you as your sins deserve. Instead, this God, who is the maker of all things, before he hung the stars in the sky, 
was determined to send Jesus, who was going to cross the light years from heaven through the galaxies to the earth. He was going to come through the universe and through the Milky Way and through the solar system and to the earth and be born in a small manger in Bethlehem. And God used the greatness of his power not to give you what you deserve, but to put what you deserved onto Jesus. And God unleashed the greatness of his wrath for your sin upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ died bearing the guilt of your great sins and God's great wrath and washed it all away and now made a way for you to get to this incredible, enormous God. That's how great he is. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Let's pray. With gratitude, Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters who have sat under your word, who have given me their attention. Pray you would take up every useless word of mine and burn it away, and every word that is from you, you would penetrate it deep into their hearts. Right now, in the places where we're anxious and afraid and frustrated, because we're living in the fantasy that we're in control, would you help us to repent right there and say, it's because I don't really believe that you're great. I don't really believe that you're in control, and so I'm living like I am. Would you bring us instead to the reality that God is great and he is in control so we don't have to be? Would you please save us from this fantasy and bring us to reality? Sometimes the circumstances of our life feel more real than you. Would you inverse that today and show us that you are ultimate reality? And help us to see you for who you are in all your greatness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord communicates to us his greatness through his word and now has invited us to receive his greatness through communion, through the table. Jesus, before he went back to heaven, having died for our sins and risen again, he said to his disciples, I'm going to give you a symbol and a sign by which you are to remember me. When you take the bread, you remember the body of Christ, the maker of heaven and earth, who took on a body and allowed that body to be broken for you. Remember that as you take the bread. And who took on human flesh and allowed his veins to have blood and allowed that blood to be shed out and poured out for the forgiveness of of your sins. Remember that when you take the cup. And if you know Jesus as Lord, if you're a part of his body, the church, and have identified with him in baptism, then you are welcome to come to this table, whoever you are. None of us come because we are right enough, but because he is great and good enough for us. So you don't need a perfect week to come to this table. You just need a repentant and faithful heart. If you don't know Jesus as Lord, if you've not trusted in him as your savior, then don't come and take these symbols. They mean nothing to you yet. And Jesus warns that it would be judgment rather than blessing. And so stay exactly where you are. Instead of receiving the symbols, receive the true gift of Jesus Christ and deal with him in your heart. No one will look at you funny for staying exactly where you are. But don't come to the table unless it's real for you. I'm going to give you a moment to just prepare your heart, to examine where you are with the Lord, confess sin and unbelief in this moment, be forgiven, and then with confidence come to the Lord's table. Let's approach the Lord in prayer.
Let's stand together. On the screen behind me, you'll find a responsive reading. I'll read the parts that begin. We can read in unison the parts that say all and allow this to prepare your hearts for the Lord's table. Merciful Lord, we do not presume to come to this your table trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, to eat this bread and drink this wine